Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that the following programme may contain the names of people who have died. The following programme contains discussion of content some listeners may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. Hello everybody and welcome to the Cinema Catch-Up Club, the podcast for films that you probably should have seen by now. I'm your host Stephen Platt, thank you very much for downloading this week's episode and this week it's a brand new year, 2021 baby, woo! That's right, we are kicking off the new year uh, as we do um, every year on this podcast with a month of Australian films, including one from New Zealand. Uh, yes, we're looking at a couple of Australian films to kick off the year. The film we are looking at is turning 50 years old. It is Walkabout. Joining me to review Walkabout, we have two guests, as always, someone who has seen the film and someone who has not. Our guest who has not seen the film, uh, a big welcome to 2021 for Georgia Smith. Hey. How you doing, Georgia? I'm all right. Good. Happy New Year. Thank you. Um, how, how's things? How, how are things in the, in the land of G Smitty? Oh, you know, I'm sure they're great. They're ready to go work in Perth Festival again, getting into Fringe World, all the things. Mm, yes. One brings. Warming up, uh, figuratively and literally, because it is hot in, in Perth at the moment. Um, walkabout. You have not seen this film? No. What do you know about it? Literally nothing. Okay. <laughs> nothing at all. Until I saw the cover of the DVD in front of me at the moment, I had not even seen the poster. So, <clears throat> Blu-ray. Absolutely nothing. Excellent. So you're coming into this completely fresh. Uh, yeah. Um, what are you expecting then, based on one, um, one DVD slash Blu-ray cover that you've looked at? Um, just like some Australian Outback, some like, yeah, we'll just see. I just end up always... <laughs> interested in australian films telling australian stories by like and i don't know i know no nothing about the like actors or the like people who made it so it'll be interesting excellent a complete blank canvas which is what we love yeah uh well joining us with uh very much a a filled in messy canvas it is murray jackson how are you murray i'm fantastic Stephen. cursing you for not letting me review wake and fright which was released the same year but mm. uh, still pretty happy you know walk about yeah let's go with it yes it was it really was a choice of one or the other mm. um, good year for australian films it certainly was but we've gone walk about so in a vague non-spoilery sort of way mm. what can people like georgia and indeed myself who have not seen this film what can what can we expect oh god um, this is a really difficult one we're talking nick Roog, and nick is or was, because he's dead now, um, famous for some really um, irritating cutting to to a lot of people. So uh, his films can appear very disjointed. Um, I would compare Nick Roog films with those of David Lynch in in some ways, in that the director makes no apologies for not explaining to you what you've just watched. Um, So, yeah... It's a difficult one to describe and to to give a plot outline might actually detract from just sitting here and watching it and making up your own minds. It's something we could probably have a discussion about afterwards. Um, from memory, I've only seen this film once. Uh, it was a while back. Um, there's something about early 70s Australian cinematography which I just find magical in terms of capturing things like the outback. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so yeah, kids, if you've not seen Peter Weir's Picnic at Hanging Rock, you've got to watch it just for the cinematography alone. Mm. Um, and have someone like um, Nick Rug, who um, was really a foreigner coming here to film something that was set in Australia, um, you know, probably was a, a, a big deal because a fairly nascent film industry in Australia back in those days. So this was our chance to be seen on big screens all around the world. And this film, I think from memory, introduces us to Goldpool, um, mm. who has been a mainstay of Australian films now for 50 years. Uh, so, you know, big up Nick for bringing David Goldpool into, into filmmaking. Um, and it also has uh, one of my favourite actresses, from the 70s, um, Jenny Agata. Um, and uh, yeah, dear old Jenny, um, she's a really classically trained actor, but um, she spends an awful lot of time in her films with no clothes on. Um, so yeah, this is sort of the beginning of my journey with Jenny Agata as, a, as an actress. And um, I like her in a lot of different genre films that I watch. So. Yeah, I don't know how I, I can't describe the film. Mm. It's it's an experience. Well, instead of letting you describe the film, shall we watch it and then talk about it having then seen it? Yes. Let's do it. Okay. For those of you who are listening at home, uh, pop in those DVDs and Blu-rays and prepare to go walkabout as we watch Walkabout. Welcome back, everybody. We have just finished watching Walkabout. By we, I, of course, mean Mary Jackson. Hello. And Georgia Smith. Hey, hey. Georgia, that was your first time watching Walkabout. What? What did you think? I just don't... I don't know yet. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, like, a bit of nothing, but also, like, incredible to, like, see all the, like, nature and landscape and stuff. Mm. But the story was just, like, so chopped about that I'm just... I feel like I'm going to be processing it for like the next couple of days. I have to agree. Uh, this was my first time watching it as well. And I feel as though, I feel as though having watched Picnic at Hanging Rock, um, I feel prepared for this kind of thing now a little mm. bit. This, this sort of film where the, the, the story is important, but it's not the most important thing about the film. I would mm. say um, it's, I, I can see, why why it has had such an impact is kind of the main thing I, I came away from from this this viewing um because it is pretty remarkable it's never boring i think is yeah. is quite one of the fascinating mm. things about it is i was at no point was i going oh boy what more outback okay well, i get like it, it was constantly uh engaging me how was it for you murray because it's the first time you've watched it in a while um, yeah, a lot, I mean, a lot of it sort of came flooding back when I, when I, uh, when I was watching it. Um, look, yeah, for me, obviously, we, we talked a lot during the film about some of the incongruities, you know, the idea that um, yeah, just out of Sydney, there's this massive desert um, <laughs> where you can take your children and you know, handy picnic before you commit suicide and leave them to the elements. Um, it was it was 
it's weird in that regard because you, you're never quite sure where, where are we where, where the heck are we um and yeah, part of you tries to guess whether or not that was actually a ploy on the director's part or whether or not they really just had no clue about Australia before they came here and started filming. Um, but from a, a linear perspective, a linear story perspective, um, I think the best that, that I take away from it is that um, it's, a, it's a story about moving from adolescence to you know young adulthood, particularly from the, the point of view of the um, Gopal character and from Jenny Agata's character. Mm. Um, and, you know, if I watch it in that light, then a lot of it makes sense. Yeah. Um, some of the weird juxtapositions that are thrown in there, like you know, what we loosely referred to as the horny Frenchman's tea party mm. uh, <laughs> in the middle of the desert, I can't quite get my head around that um, as some of the other stuff but this is that's that's rude he's he's a director who doesn't feel the need to explain to you why he's done what he's done um and he leaves it up to you i guess which can be bloody infuriating Mm. yeah i quite enjoyed that process though of of not ever quite not having everything spelled out which I think is something that, particularly in Australian films or Australian filmmakers, there's a lot of that. I feel as though it's one of the great strengths of a film like Mad Max Fury Road, which obviously is George Miller at the helm. Um, There's a lot of that film that is shown but never explained. Like, Mm -hmm. I I always think of the really striking visual imagery of that film, of, of, like, the guys on the stilts, when they're mm. travelling through the desert at night. And it's like, what What are they up to? I don't know. <laughs> I still don't know. But I love having the space to sort of imagine. And I feel as though Picnic at Hanging Rock does it, I think I think Walkabout does it better than that film, though. I, th- I think it sort of allows you to, th- through the Australian um, outback and through the landscape and through the many creatures that they show, it, it sort of just allows you to really almost luxuriate in the idea of, experiencing this world that is so other from even the day-to-day experiences of people who live on that same land like we live a very traditional um sort of rest of the world lifestyle you know we are in an air-conditioned house in a in a suburb right now um you know we we are experiencing life in a very similar way to lots of other people around the world what i think this film does really well um and it, it, is it shows you just this entire other way of living and i think it does it in a way that is quite respectful without being um moralistic which i think is something that i was well quite you, 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 you have to approach it on that level because um you know every five minutes or so a small creature dies um yes. which yeah yeah that's that's it's quite brutal and quite hard to watch yeah um, but particularly from our sensibilities today where that sort of thing is frowned on and you know, this film, if it was being submitted for classification today, probably wouldn't pass um, because of the the animal cruelty involved. Mm. Um, so, yeah, there's that. I, I I actually see it, as I say, as a as an allegory for for um, you know passing from from child to to adult. Mm. Um, I just found it incredibly moving and really quite sad. The ending, where Gopal 
does the mating dance and is rejected. And that complete look of confusion and, um, I guess, um, despair in his eyes to the point where it's not explained how he dies, but obviously he, he, he dies either from a broken heart or, or from his own hand, we're not quite sure. Um, and that, that, that's the, the, almost the indifference of, of these two who've travelled yeah. with him. When we never get really, I, I think, a sense of the time that's passed and how long they've been in each other's company. But they, that's that. Will it? Will it? We can accept that and move on. Mm. Um, I don't. I don't know. How did that work for you? It seemed like because she'd said to the brother, oh, "We're going to leave him tomorrow. Like we're going to split up. We're going to go our own way." And then when she found his body, she was like, "Oh, well, that's taken care of. That isn't it?" <laughs> like mm. It sort of just continued on with her life. Yeah. And then it was like in that final scene where she's back in the same apartment in Sydney somehow. Hmm. Somehow she's gotten there, even though she was asking to go to Adelaide earlier. Um, Yeah, that she was then remembering, like, fondly the time that she had with him. Hmm. Hmm. And maybe, like, as a bit older, being like, oh, that was very interesting, like, formative time in my life that I'm now appreciating as, like, a slightly older woman, potentially. Yeah. But yeah, the actual moving on of just packing some mangoes and leaving him when she'd been at the gravesite of the people that used to live in that house, mm. potentially. And had wept yeah. for these people she didn't know. Yeah, then, and then just left him. Yeah, I, I think it's that is really kind of fascinating, particularly from the perspective of if looking at this film as a coming-of-age film for, for girl, because nobody is named in this film. The cast list, like, literally... Um, the three main actors get billed as girl, white boy, and black boy, and everyone else in the cast list doesn't even have a title on the credits. Um, and when you look them up online, it's things like man number one, an Italian scientist, and <laughs> things like that. So um, I think it's really interesting looking at the idea of that final scene where she's with presumably her husband, who is a businessman, and he's just talking about whatever it is they're doing in the business, and she's not really paying attention. I feel as though there's there's this real sense of regret that she is no longer living that that walkabout life is is kind of what i got from it mm. um is you know she's, she's or like, even even thinking back to you know that that coming of age with a, mm. a sense of wistfulness yeah um and i think the the imagery throughout this film is very strong but I think in that final scene and sort of contrasting her just in the kitchen with um with her husband and then cutting back to the shots of the three of them buck naked swimming around in the water and just having like a a grand old time it's very Garden of Eden it is yeah Yeah. and I think it's really really quite striking um as, as indeed I think the use of nudity is quite striking, and it's one of the things that this film is is known for. Is obviously um, everyone's naked at some point, um, and obviously you know David Gulpilil is not wearing many clothes the entire time because that's what you know his, he, he wears. That, that's, that's let's something. be fair here. Jenny's not wearing clothes a lot of the time either. Stephen, yes, but no, that's what I'm sort of getting at. Is mm. we we see. Um, Jenny Agata, who I believe at the time of production was 16 or 17, mm. depending on where you were, and she's fully naked and 
swimming around or you know she's got her like she's got her breasts out at various points in the film but i don't think any of it was from from my perspective i didn't read it as being inappropriate or even sexualized i, I don't know did you, what was your reading of that? Um, i'm not entirely convinced of that particularly with regard to some of the other shots of some other some of the other women in the film mm. that there wasn't necessarily um, a, a certain sexualized aspect to it. Whether or not you know it's a cynic, that cynical me saying, "Well, this is a way to maybe get some bums on seats and come and see my film because mm. it's controversial and you know there's you know, people in the buff." Um, I think there was certainly intended to be a certain kind of eroticism to it, um, but also an innocence as well. Mm. Um, and and maybe happily married off at the end there where there didn't appear to be any sexualization in that in that final tableau they're just kids enjoying the feeling of water on their skin mm. and just being you know as nature intended in nature mm. um so yeah i don't know yeah i think like obviously the scientist woman was like highly sexualized yeah, yeah. Um, but that then juxtaposed to the image of girl swimming by herself. Actually, that seemed like pretty innocent because he wasn't like watching over her. Mm. Oh, yeah. The only time she was really sex- sexualized was like when she was then compared to like the tree limbs. Yeah. And that sort of like Where, dream-esque yeah. night I could, sequence. I couldn't tell whose dream that was. I was reading that as... I actually read that scene as it was sort of both of them having these like sexual thoughts at the same time and that the imagery of the tree was kind of reflecting both of their thoughts because I I definitely read it that she was having thoughts about um, about the Gulpalil's character Mm -hmm. and that they were of a sexual nature and it was making her uncomfortable because again it's a coming of age thing and these things that can be very uh, awkward and difficult and um, m- my reading of that scene at least was that was like a shared realisation of them both thinking about each other in a, in a sexual way Yeah. Um, but I do think it is really interesting that you have the scene with the scientists and that, that female scientist being in an environment where there's five other men and three of them are playing cards with like naked ladies like with their boobs out just like posing and you know that's the seven of clubs and, and all the that. other one's sucking her thumb or fingers yeah, yeah. Um, so strange yeah it was so confused by it that was, entire scene. yeah and, the, and the, the main like guy in a lab coat just like trying to perv down a top that read like you know like the, the worst excesses of the carry-on films and benny hill just like mishmash together <laughs> yeah. to eventually get to this point where they accidentally let a weather balloon go was the point of that yeah. scene and she's just like yeah. oh, that's so expensive but oh. then it immediately cuts to girl um swimming naked and just enjoying being in the water and being clean whilst the maybe it's a dirty director trick hunting. like okay See, now you, you, you're getting all hot under the collar with my little pervy bit. Now we're going to go to a, a, an adolescent girl naked in the water. Now are you feeling a bit naughty and dirty for yeah. having those thoughts? But I almost feel it was almost the other way, where showing that, that he was then like, I want to do this shot, this scene, where we have this person, this adolescent girl, experiencing like just being kind of free in nature and being um, feeling safe enough as well. Because at no point... Is she ever perceived? It, 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 there's no peril put 
for like her or her character or her situation in that scene. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of contradiction with David Gulpalil hunting, and you know, there's a lot of animal cruelty that we're seeing. Um, but but at no point is girl ever. I, I suppose shown in the lens of being vulnerable in that scene. The vulnerability only comes in with when the mating ritual starts and she's rejecting it, and we're just not sure what's going to happen. Mm. But I do wonder if I do almost feel it's almost like a, a bit of a sneaky thing to go. Here's a bunch of like what mm. you expect of like ah oh, what mm. you're sexualizing women and stuff, and now here's this scene where that's not happening, and it's definitely not happening because you've just seen the example in the scene before. Mm, as I say, it's probably a dirty, dirty director's yeah. trick, isn't it? But I'm, I am keen to sort of know from your perspective as a woman because this is a lot of what you see in 70s cinema and 80s cinema for that matter, mm. which is this overt sexualization of of women in particular um, or violence against women in a lot of cases too. Mm. Um, but from what you're saying, you didn't really take it. That that was the case from from this film. Not from anything that like the yeah young girl was doing. Mm. I really just felt like she was just like living her life in her body, like yep. and just mm. and it wasn't yeah being like portrayed in any like mm. aggressive way. It wasn't like we had like David just watching her while it was happening. Mm. He was like slightly intrigued by her, but only. I read or like most of his intrigue until the like mating dance. It's just mm. being like, oh yeah, this is just like he's obviously seen naked women before. Given what he's wearing, you assume that the rest of mm. his like community are wearing similar things potentially, oh. uh, like the people that find the car. Mm. But he's just like, oh, this is a white woman's body. Mm. Oh, it's exactly the same. Mm. Like yeah. with, then he's playing with the little brother and stuff at the end. Yeah, so and maybe like, maybe that was the shock and the juxtaposition at the end with her, where like I didn't realize you perceived me in this manner, or perhaps she was just frightened by mm. a mating ritual. She didn't even understand it was a mating ritual. It's yeah. hard to yeah. say, isn't it? I, yeah, I, it's very hard because like the brother has started to pick up on some of the language. And mm. she is just mustering the word water, which is the very first thing that he says to them. Yeah. And she's now, like, trying to figure it out. Mm. So, yeah, she just, like, I think is just so confused and was already planning on splitting ways. And then he's like, what is happening? And yeah. he's in this house where she's grieving for these other white people. Mm. And it's just like, yeah, it's very yeah. interesting. And I think it's really interesting that if you're looking at this as a, as a film about adolescence, the role that the boy plays, the young boy, um, played by Luke Rugg, the director's son. Um, the fact that he represents where girl is moving on from, like mm-hmm. he's quite, she she's obviously obfuscating a lot of things, like the fact that their dad tried to murder them and then burnt the car and shot himself, which just that whole bit came out of nowhere. Mm. Um, I think definitely there's a lot of things that seem to come out of nowhere with this film, and that really. Well, that's what I was saying to you about Rude. He's he's really one of those directors that you want to sit down, tie to a chair and say, you will not move from here (laughs) until you tell me exactly what you were thinking with this film. But I think he kind of shows, like the stuff with the father in that first scene where we see him leaving the business and he comes home and he's having his cigar and his drink and he's watching the kids in the pool. You could tell something wasn't quite right, but... I did, at no point did I suspect it was, it was going to murder the kids at a picnic. And like even when he first shoots at his son who's playing with the guns, I, I thought he was playing along and just being an irresponsible gun owner. <laughs> I didn't think he was trying to shoot his son. 
Um, and what a terrible shot. Yeah, he missed. Yeah. All Many times. But there was also that one shot of the like son putting the water pistol inside his mouth and the dad seemed to like really focus on that. And mm. I was like, it's weird suicide ideation. And then I was like, oh no, it just is it. That's what it is. That's what it is. It's yeah. just happened. And it's, I mean, it's, it's a way to get them in the outback, I guess. Um, With no explanation of where in the outback yeah. or how they've got there or why they're in their school uniforms. But I almost feel as though the film's sort of kind of in, in a very inadvertent way. It always could just be my reading of it explains or tries to explain that people certain people in like contemporary white uh dominated colonial civilization seek escape from it Mm -hmm. and we see that a bit with girl at the end when she's going back to memories of of swimming with her brother and um and uh, david gullipil and they the father's escape is murder and suicide and burning the car and i i that that at least is kind of my my reading of it is that there are certain people who realize that the world they're in is a bit of a trap and i think there's a really interesting focus on like brick walls when we're in civilization and around certain systems like we see the the young schoolboy mm. watching the soldiers march and everything's mm-hmm. very structured and like we see they don't live in a house they live in apartments that are all on top of each other. And even though we were saying, ah, oh, million dollar views and all that kind of thing, there's a real sort of almost imprisoned feeling. Well, those cuts between the walls and the images of the outback, I mean, they, without laying it on with a trowel necessarily, you know, the idea of <coughs> this is what's holding you in, but mm-hmm. outside there's complete and total freedom. Mm. Yeah, and her seeing that also happening at the end as well. Like, there was a couple mm. of shots of just her... What you imagine her looking at through one of the windows is that brick wall mm. that you notice again. And then the, like, images once again of them swimming. Yeah. It's it's a fascinating film. I, I really... I think I really did quite enjoy it, to be honest. Um, and I really enjoyed the the lack of dialogue. I suppose, which is something we kind of flagged at the beginning, is mm-hmm. this is not a film with a lot of talking, and I almost feel as though when they do speak, it ruins it a little bit um, in in some respects. Um, it could just be because I was frustrated with just how English girl was with a lot of her mindset, and admittedly, a lot of that was trying to protect her brother. Um, you know, the, even though he's clearly switched on, he's he knows by the end of the film that dad shot himself even though he's like well why do you do that he's been silly like that (laughs) Mm. um even though he doesn't quite have the understanding of the reasons why he understands what has happened um and yeah there was uh, i think maybe that's part of the the frustration of the trappings of the world that they come from um a lot of the things about girl that she doesn't let go seem to be quite language focused to an extent you know, she all, she pretty much for the entire trip has the radio and has that constant voice from where she's come from, sort of keeping her in line and almost like reminding her of the structure that she comes from and the structure that she's kind of wanting to go back to, but also not necessarily realizing that she doesn't necessarily need it. I think it's kind of fascinating. I think there's definitely a reading in there about the idea of it almost being like a siren's call, constantly calling her back and pulling her away from this life that David Gullipil's character is showing her, which is you can survive on the land. You have to be really horrible to a lot of animals to do it, <laughs> but it's it's an option. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that, that also that, juxt- that juxtaposition towards the end there between Gulpilil hunting and providing for them and along come the white hunters and just basically mm. killed for sport. Yeah. yeah. And, and, yeah, his... his I mean, I mean the, the acting in this film was pretty good all across the board, but David Gulliper's sort of emotional distress at seeing what the white hunters have done and and his sort of body language and his reactions in the scenes after it are just fantastic mm. like he's he's i mean he's he is one of the the great actors of the last 50 years to to have come out of this country and i this is this is the first thing he does like that's on film mm. and it's it's incredible um, he's he's just he's just such a great actor, but it's amazing to see that it's there from the beginning. Um, and obviously, none of us speak any of the native um, indigenous languages here in Australia. Um, but I always sort of felt I knew even when he was speaking what not what he meant, but how he was feeling in the scenes, um, how how he was communicating you always had a sense of where he was at despite not understanding the context of the words that he was saying. Yeah, it was very, like, emotive. Mm. Which I think it's like watching, like, just because all we've got to go off is his facial expressions and his, like, Mm. movements going along with it. So we've just got to, like, Mm. read that. It's like watching someone sign. Yeah. Because so much of sign language is actually about the facial expression that you're making Mm. when you're doing it. So I was like, okay, I can, like, follow this even though I can't understand a word. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that opening scene of him meeting them, um, I'm pretty sure the intent of the words is, what the hell are you doing out here? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Here's a lizard. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. What more do you want? Um, Yeah. it, It is just really fascinating. And I think the reason why it works is at no point did his character suddenly do something that I wasn't expecting. I feel as though... You know, at no point was it like, I'm interpreting it this way. Oh, he's done something completely different. I was interpreting it wrong. I never got thrown from my reading of that. And I think that is entirely down to fantastic acting. Um, it is it is beautifully captured. Um, do you guys have a favourite animal we saw in this film? We basically had almost every Australian animal um, on display. And a lot of the time we were going, oh, look at that. Oh, isn't that, that great? Um, any, any, any particular favourite animal cameo in this one? Uh, I quite like the echidna. Because it's like little weird roly-poly spiky body. Mm-hmm. And the wombat that just like sniffed them and then just like waddled off out of frame again. Yeah. Yeah, def- definitely the wombat. Yeah, I like the wombat. I would have to say I also really like the little spiky lizard. I don't know. Thorny devil. Thorny devil, yeah. God, they're great. They're just, they're just great <laughs> in general. Uh, but yeah, just him wandering around and going... <laughs> and then wandering off. And the little angry bobtail that they walked over at the beginning yeah they walk past and it just turns its head and opens up its big gummy mouth and just goes <laughs> did, did anyone to, you know towards the end there after we've just been through this farrago or this this parade of animal deaths there was a scene there with a frilled lizard with the, the complete frill out mm. yeah and were you watching that like me and going, well, that's a goner? <laughs> yeah, a I was bit. like, buddy, put him down and just like scutter remember, away. I can't remember <laughs> if that was after Gulpil had died or not, but I, I still had the feeling that you, you, you're like gone. it was son. just after her swimming. So I yeah. think it was, it yeah, was, yeah it was we'd still seen, alive. It was not long after a lot of animal death because I had the same feeling <laughs> yeah. of like, 
oh no, he's going to like throw a rock at it or something. And I was like, and there's not much made on a frill neck. Like, just yeah. leave it be. Luckily, that lizard seemed to be okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, yeah, it is, it is a really interesting film. I do, I, I do wonder about whether or not the, the animal cruelty aspect should be kept in. Like I'm, I, in terms, well, of you'd have a very short film if it wasn't. Almost the, the main, I think, issue that I have with it, and again, as you said before, it's very much like a modern sensibility thing, is seeing the point of impact. Like when he throws the spears at the kangaroo, and we see it's wounded when it's trying to run away, and we see animals die. Like we see them, the the we see the moment of death captured on camera. And whilst one part of me is going, it's really interesting to have this documentation of how um, people who are native to Australia did hunt. I'm not thrilled about it being in something that is made primarily for entertainment. Mm, I think a lot of it mm. makes sense until there is those ones where it looks like he's just killing multiple at the same time, like, in the same day. Yeah. And then has no way to, like, properly store the meat for it to last longer mm. than, like, that mm. day. So I was like, oh, there's a bit... It's getting a bit much. Like, it made sense that he was, like, killing them. They were yeah. eating it. Or he was, like, using some of the stuff for more of his tools, like, getting the... in Whatever it was out of the tail and that sort of thing and tying that onto the end of, like, a spear. Mm. Like, that all made sense. And then... It, at one point seemed like he just killed three kangaroos in a row and I was like there's no way you can eat three yeah. kangaroos today and like, e- even if it was like showing the passage of time which I believe it may have been doing some of it yeah it still felt like it was too much and I felt bad for watching the film even though it was made long before I was born and I had no say in it I felt bad for watching the I film I think there's a difference between watching this and, and this is going to be the oddest comparison ever on mm. Cinema Catch-Up Club, <laughs> um, between watching this and, say, Cannibal Holocaust, mm-hmm. where in addition to a lot of very gory scenes of um, people dying in horrible ways, um, there is uh, actual footage of um, native South American tribes killing and eating turtles and god knows what now in that particular film the filmmaker deliberately inserted those scenes for shock value so they weren't there as any sort of instruction on how these people were living their lives or anything along those lines it was done primarily to shock and you know cause distress i suppose one of a better word um or you know if you're sick and twisted get off on it in some twisted way now that has been problematical in terms of that film's re-release on home um, cinema, whether it be Blu-ray, DVD or whatever. Um, there are certain countries that have refused to release it with that graphic animal footage in it. Um, there is a bit of a debate, I suppose, in the, the horror community over whether or not you should view the film without the animal cruelty and whether you can say you've really seen the film if you haven't seen it. My sensibility is I don't need to see it. It's not integral to the story and therefore I can do without it. Now, compare that with Walkabout where the killing and consumption of the animals is part of the story. 
Um, so it's very hard to, to rip it all out and say, well, we can just do without that now and just concentrate on the, the, the rest of the story. It's actually part of the bloody story because Goldpool's character has been sent by his tribe into the desert to do his time of, of learning to be a man and look after himself, part of which is kill, catch and eat everything that you need to survive. So to suddenly rip it all out, I, to me, that's like, well, no, you're actually taken away from the story. You're taken away from the, 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 the journey of that particular character. Mm. Um, and you're, you're taken away from, you know, the, the savagery that that introduces to the, the other two characters. Mm. At the same time, there's an awful lot of it. Mm. And whether or not we need to be literally banged over the head with it every five minutes, I'm, I'm not sure. It's a bloody difficult watch. Yeah from a 2020 perspective mm. yeah it's um yeah i just think it's interesting to to flag up and if you are listening to this program and haven't watched the film yet um hey watch out there is there is a lot of of animal cruelty in this film and um i'm not a fan but also i i agree largely with what you said about it in the same way that i didn't feel as though when we saw um, the girl character being um, naked, at no point did I feel as though that was being done for any sort of like um, gratification of a sexual nature. I don't feel as though the the hunting scenes were shown in like a isn't killing animals cool kind of way. It was very much being shown from a this is what survival looks like. And I think contrasting that first kangaroo being chopped up with the imagery of a contemporary butcher chopping bits of meat that was good yeah that, was that a very good piece of yeah well yeah. that's that's Ruge's way of saying well there's no real difference is yeah it? yeah and like that was hard to watch but it made it i agree i was like this is really good it was after that with the continued showing of animals being hurt that i was like i was less of a fan of but um it's yeah it's that's that's sort of where i sit you may sit differently that's kind of the point of the of film i, I think guess. my least favorite part was really like the men in the truck just killing yeah. them and then like driving off driving off yeah they, they were they were not good dudes we yeah not not a fan of those guys yeah particularly mm. whoever they are yeah they're no character names <laughs> yeah no one got a name so <laughs> it's just uh yeah just dickheads in trucks <laughs> yeah. i think is what they're officially known yeah. as would you guys like some trivia about walkabout sure for sure okay all of this trivia is sourced from imdb so if it's not true don't blame me um Jenny Agata was embarrassed when doing the scene of her swimming naked in the, in the lake, so as many as possible of the crew were sent away. Uh, so, again, I, I'm kind of like, that's yeah. generally good practice. Uh, but when shooting was done, the crew uh, basically all stripped naked and went for a swim themselves because they were like, <laughs> it's bloody hot. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, I like to imagine it being like in Mulan where she um, gets out of the, the the river and goes, I never want to see a naked man again. And then a hundred of them run past. <laughs> <laughs> um, Luke Rogue was actually sunburnt in that scene where he has the sunburn. Yeah, um, I can oh, okay. imagine that he would have mm. been. It was the 70s. There wasn't that much sunscreen going no. around. Um <laughs> When um, David Goldpool's character treats his back, he's rubbing him with fat from a wild boar. So it was a boar because we couldn't oh. tell what animal it was. Um, the director, Nicholas Rogue, thought it would make for a good scene in the film. So he picked up his camera and shot it. So that was actually just them treating Luke for sunburn. Wow. And he went, we're going to throw it in the film. Because, yeah, he was using 
the the traditional um remedy for it and cool. yeah i'm like that's not so good you let your son get burnt but i guess <laughs> i guess you, you worked around it um the film was largely improvised edward bond's screenplay for this film is only 14 pages long well that's just giving a screenwriting credit for nothing really isn't it due to uh the full frontal nudity scenes um the film originally drew an R rating from the MPAA. It was reduced to PG on appeal because the scenes weren't considered sexual in nature. Decades later, when revised child protection laws were tightened and increased the age of nudity in films to 18, the movie had to be reviewed again, but the board left the same rating for the same reason. Hmm. Well, that's sensible. Yeah. Yeah. Again, again, just... Yeah, I feel as though... The more I think about it, the more I feel as though they, they went about portraying that the right way yeah if there is a right way to portray it i think that well, i that... think also having your son at least for the final scene having your son there yeah like it gives you a different perspective i guess or yeah. it likes like a close perspective when you're like i want this film to exist for a long time hmm. i also want my son to be okay with what i've done yeah in years to come yeah and you know he's just He's doing what, what kids do, you know, just running yeah. around with, in, in his case, his doodle out, jumping in the river, <laughs> going like, woohoo! Yeah. Yeah. Um, the poetry quoted by the narrator at the end of the film is part 40 of A. He Houseman's A Shropshire Lad. Uh, just for poetry fans, if you wanted yeah. to know what that poem was at the end. I wasn't necessarily a massive fan of it. It felt a bit out of place. I almost felt as though what we were seeing was kind of speaking for itself. I don't know if you guys felt differently. Yeah, I've seen this with a few British films, and they end with some sort of, um, you know, over, over the um, film soliloquy, and uh, yeah, once again, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, the one I'm thinking of is um, Seven Up. You you know the one where the the, the, they film the people every seven years as they yeah. get older, yeah. right? And the original Seven Up, it finishes with a thing: "Give me the boy at age seven, yeah, and I will that. show you the man." Yeah. It's, it was, you know, as very heavy-handed, and I find it much the same with this. Yeah, yeah. The final bit of trivia, um, I quite enjoyed. Uh, the final bit of trivia. Jenny Agata's initial interest in participating in this film was sparked by a desire to meet the Beatles, who were considered as potential financiers. Oh! <laughs> now, I what? don't know, and I don't believe that the Beatles ever ended up being directly involved with the financing of this film, but considering that they started shooting it in 1969, they were still together at that time. Yeah. I just really liked, she's like, I might meet the Beatles, so I'm going to audition. <laughs> I'll give it a go. We'll yeah. see what happens. Um, what pop supergroup or performer would make you audition for a film where you had to be naked to potentially meet them? That's, that's the question <laughs> I would ask. Is there anyone that it's like, okay, I have to be naked on camera, but I get to meet, Blank. I mean, the Beatles in their heyday is like a pretty good reason. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I'm. I'm not sure I'd do it for any boy bands, to be honest. Banana Rama, possibly. Really? <laughs> oh. Oh no, I know the one. I do know the one. Mm-hmm. Um, the Bangles. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. If it's <laughs> going to get me some Susanna Hoff's action, I'm right there. I mean, you might just get to meet them. But you might. <laughs> well. Okay. Okay. That's fair. Yeah. I'll take that. Yeah. 
I honestly cannot think of a single musician that I would be like, yeah, I'm happy to be naked in this film. Just I for think, a I think all of us, probably for Bowie, surely. Uh, you know, yep, you've just found yeah. it. That's yeah. <laughs> there it is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. To, to meet, meet Bowie, yeah, okay, I'd probably jump naked into a river. Mind you, if, if, if Bowie actually said, well, look, I'm happy to meet with them, but... First, I have to see them naked. Yeah, that's, that might that's be a bit weird. Yeah, 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 that goes into different territory. Yeah. But uh, uh, if the estate of David Bowie are listening, we're very sure he never did that because <laughs> he was a nice guy. Uh, I think I think you're really um, leaving out and cutting out entirely the fact that Rod Stewart makes an appearance in this film. He um, does. Mm. Yeah, I'm not sure what the song is, but uh, it was nice. Yeah. I wonder if when the Beatles pulled out, they were looking around to <laughs> what, what, just anyone. <laughs> what other mad English rockers can we get? Yeah, Rod. Yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> and uh, and thus, it happened. Uh, I but think yeah. it would have been a very different film if one of the songs on the radio was like a very popular Beatles song, like mm. "Ticket to Ride." Yeah, or it would have really because at least like Rod, you could be like, oh yeah, this is like a song. From the time, but yeah. it didn't like directly place it. Yeah, it didn't make you go like, "Oh, this is the hot hit of 1968." Yeah. Oh, whoops, that this feels super of its time now. Yeah, yeah, I felt, I felt that. Yeah, you're right. It was kept reasonably generic. Well, enough. you could you the, the one I can think of that might have actually um, propelled, you know, given some meaning to the father's um, suicide. Mm-hmm. You could have had the Beatles singing "Don't Bring Me Down." Don't bring me down. Yeah, just as the car like, melted behind. Yeah, <laughs> yeah just that slowly warps and crackles and, and then when the kids turn it back on and it's it's some other like maybe octopus's like, garden yeah, or something. Yeah, Sergeant yeah. Pepper mm. and the kids are like, "What is this? It's too experimental!" And they run away. Uh, so revolution number nine. Yeah. <laughs> so um, having having now officially figured out who we would get naked to meet. <laughs> Let's score the film. Uh, and we are going to start with you, George. Oh, we're, doing, we're doing this with our clothes. Stephen, put your clothes back on. Oh, we sorry. don't have to do the scoring naked. Sorry. Oh, goodness. Oh. <laughs> okay, shirt's back on. Georgia, you get to go first because it was your first time watching this film. What score would you give Walkabout out of 10? Um, it's a safe space, Georgia. I feel no like judgment. I'd give it like eight budgies eating fruit in a tree out mm. of 10. Yeah, they would. They were great budgies. Such good budgies. Yeah. Uh, what about yourself, Murray? Oh, crikey. Um, I'm probably not going to be that generous, to be perfectly honest with you, because, yeah, I'm just not going to. Um, <laughs> I was thinking about six and a half, um, gulp little mating dances myself. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I will admit, there's a lot I really like about this film. And there's there's a couple of things I really don't like, um, and they are definitely detracting from the score. But I think it's a really worthwhile film to see. I think. Yeah, I don't know how much I'll watch it again. Yeah, so it's, I don't know whether that, I don't know. It might have been too high. But it's no, pretty. But, yeah, but that's hmm. just it. It's pretty. Like, and, and it is a good film, and I think yeah. it's definitely worth watching. I would say maybe it's worth watching ahead of something like Picnic at Hanging Rock, which is a... Ooh. It's a good film. Big call. But I think I prefer what Walkabout is doing in a sort of similar-ish space. This didn't have panpipes. As lovely a soundscape as it did, Mm. didn't have the panpipes. Maybe that's why it's doing better for me. Ah, maybe. (laughs) Well, maybe too many panpipes. panpipe-hating person. (laughs) Uh, Try saying that quickly, kids. uh, I think Walkabout is, is... It's a very, very 
well-made film. I think it's a very... Um, it's a film with a lot that's interesting about it. And I think it's definitely worth watching. But there is a lot of animal cruelty. Uh, and I'm not, not big on that. And also, there's there's a couple of like small technical things where you know, you're looking at it and going, ah, this didn't quite work for me visually. For me, it's always whenever they do day for night shots. And there mm-hmm. are quite a few of them in this film. But... They're not. They're not too bad. They're not as bad as say uh, what they had in Deliverance, which just looks appalling on modern displays. Um, this at least looked a bit like nighttime, but but that's a very small technical gripe. It, overall, I think it's it's a very it's a very good film. So I will give it. Um, I'm going to give it seven missed bullets out of ten uh, <laughs> because because the dad was a terrible shot. Uh, but this was not a terrible film Uh, so that brings us to the end of this review Georgia and Murray thank you so much for joining me on the first episode of 2021 thank you pleasure and for those of you listening at home thank you for listening in it's a brand new year which means we're going to review 52-ish brand new films brandish new Uh, some of them could be up to 100 years old some of them may have came out last year we'll wait and see what the year holds in store but if you want to get these episodes each and every week you can subscribe to us on itunes soundcloud spotify various other podcasting and podcatching services you get a fresh episode each and every week if you hit subscribe and it lets us know that we've got lots of friends around the world Uh, we actually get to see on our uh, little uh, data screens where you're listening from Uh, We know that there's a lot of you here in Australia. We know there's a lot in America, but there's plenty of you in lots of other wonderful locations around the world. So uh, please subscribe because it helps us see where you are. And it's just nice to know that occasionally we're being heard in places like Thailand and Iraq, for example. And I'm just always amazed where it's like, oh, look, it's over there now. Isn't that lovely? Um, We are also available on Facebook, wherever you are in the world. The Internet's probably available and you can go on Facebook to get news and updates about this program. Uh, and indeed films that are coming up in the year 2021. Just search for the Cinema Catch-Up Club on Facebook. And of course, there is our Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash CCUC podcast. If you go to that address and join up for as little as a dollar a month, you get all sorts of bonus goodies and extra features. So sign up there. But that is all for this week. So until next time, goodbye. Bye. Bye. You have been listening to a Thought Jar Productions podcast. For more information, please visit thoughtjarproductions.com.